name is Tanitani uh, Dastrucha, and I am one of the faculty members of the program in narrative medicine. But I stand up here not alone, but I stand up here on behalf of the other faculty of the program, including our director, Rita Sharon, who is on the on the floor up top. Um, other faculty members, Craig Irvine, uh, Morris Spiegel, Eric Marcus, who uh, I don't believe are with us this evening. Um, but also Marsha Hurst, who is directing our wonderful new master's program, who is waving to you up front. Uh, Nellie Hernan, who is waving to you from the side her. Pat Stanley, who is waving to you from the center of the room. Um, all of us are just thrilled to welcome you to our last uh, narrative medicine rounds of the 2008-2009 academic year. Um, so welcome, welcome all of you. Um, it has really been an amazing year. We've seen um, photographs, we've heard narratives of living with cancer, we've heard um, a number of wonderful authors read from memoirs, including Alice Marie Shulman and uh, Michael Greenberg. Um, we've also heard uh, some, both uh, a first-time novelist with her first wonderful acclaimed novel, Nellie Herman, and we've heard um, someone who is well known to us for her nonfiction and journalistic as well as her fiction work, Perry Class, with her new novel this year. Um, most recently, we've been visited by uh, Julie Solomon, who spent uh, a year as a fly on the wall at Maimonides Hospital and brought her, her wonderful observations in uh, her book, Hospital. And uh, most recently in May, a very timely talk, we uh, hadn't anticipated the uh, excitement over H1N1, but uh, Priscilla Walls came at that time and uh, read from her book, which is called Contagious, Cultures, Carriers, and the Outbreak Narrative. Um, so we very much look forward to continuing this long tradition of inviting scholars and authors and those working at the intersees of narrative and healthcare to come and visit with us for the 2009-2010 year. So do keep you know, abreast of uh, our speakers on our website, www.narrativemedicine.org. If you'd like to receive um, notifications about our speakers and other events, do sign up for our listserv by emailing narrativemedicine at columbia.edu. Um, so far for next year, I'll just tantalize you with a couple of uh, authors who I know are coming. Um, physician author Sandeep Jauhar will be reading from his memoir. Nurse poet Courtney Davis will be reading from her new collection. And uh, New York Times bestselling author uh, Harlan Coben will be reading from one of his latest mysteries. Um, before I introduce our director, uh, Rita Sharon, I want to take just a few minutes to do a very important job, which is thank um, all of those uh, people who make these rounds possible. Our friends at MBS Vox Common Health, including Joe Gattuso, Joe, or Anyone from MBS here? No? Um, thank you very much. Without their support, these rounds wouldn't be possible. We want to thank Tony and the wonderful staff at the Faculty Club. I don't think they can hear me because they are outside at this moment, setting up uh, wine and cheese and fruit and goodies for the reception afterward. I want to thank Sandra and her staff at the bookstore. She is also just outside the room, um, and books will be available for purchase. Um, uh, I think already she is outside selling books. I want to thank um, our entire AV department, which is comprised of 
uh, the stalwart uh, help of one woman, Connie Hopper, right here with our video camera. Um, and uh, of course, Nithin uh, Gumaste and everyone at the Center for New Media who have allowed our rounds from January onward to be podcast. So if you want to hear audio podcasts of any of our rounds from January 2009 till now, please visit our website. It will provide a link. Tonight's round will also have a video podcast available. So um, go ahead and you know avail yourself of that and send it to colleagues who weren't able to be here. So uh, most importantly, I want to uh, say two quick last things. One, I want to thank all of you for being here. All of you who are new to Narrative Medicine Rounds and all of you, you know who you are, who come every month to visit us, who um, form that community that we talk about, who have met colleagues and written grants and written papers and started new novels um, after coming to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, and for those of you who are new, you know, I invite you to come and visit with us again and again, because that is the sort of work that emerges from this community. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that, in a sense, this round um, is the end of something and the beginning of something new. This is our last round before um, our first class of master's students join us in the fall. Um, the MS in Narrative Medicine uh, is beginning in September of 2009, and we are very excited. Um, please, uh, you know, keep up to date with us. There will be lots of exciting developments going on on campus through the master's program. Um, and so, uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Rita Sharon, our director, who is an internist and a literary scholar and the author of uh, the 2006 um, book, uh, Narrative Medicine, Honoring the Stories of Illness. And she'll be introducing Dr. Saxon. who by taking directorship and creative leadership of these rounds has so inspired all of us to the point we never had so many people at one of our rounds before. This is so gratifying and, and strengthening. And Sayantani took on, she had no idea what she was taking on <laughs> last year. And she has done a simply awesome, inspiring job. And we thank you deeply. I don't have to introduce Dr. Oliver <laughs> You are sitting on the floor because you know what is to come. Let me only say what it is that he stands for for us. You all in this room know that Dr. Oliver Sacks was born in London, was uh, educated at Oxford and Queens College, became a neurologist, studied in San Francisco at UCLA, uh, moved to New York early on in his training, became a neurologist, um, did what we all, I think, know as his first work when he treated with L-DOPA a group of patients who had been, in effect, sleeping for so many years. And by treating them with L-DOPA, in fact, produced an awakening. And that's when we began to know about the work of this figure. And I hate to say, but you're a figure. <laughs> In addition to being a man. <laughs> and we all know his work uh, in The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, in A Leg to Stand On. We know the fully potent work 
the um, clinical writing, the um, autobiography. Uh, I'm stopping before saying fiction because, of course, all of it is fiction in the highest, most elevated meaning of the word fiction. The reason that he is a figure for us in this room, among the other things, is his liminality. Uh, the, the, the liminal is, of course, the boundary zone between one thing and its opposite. So the liminal zone is what comes between male and female, or black and white, or low tide and high tide. And so, of course, Dr. Oliver Sacks is liminal in that he exists both in the world of science and the world of poetry. That we know, that he is indeed a neurologist and a writer. But far more of interest to us, he's liminal. I don't know if he still does, but at least he used to, for many, many years, live in City Island. I don't know if he does anymore. Any of you know where City Island is? Yes. Right? LaGuardia, you see this little... Well, it's a piece of New York City that could be, today, a fishing village in Rhode Island in the 1940s. Right? And so the very travel from uh, um, time and place that that represents impresses me. But he's liminal in the clinical work that he has given us access to. The work with the deaf, the work with the neurologically different, I'm not going to say impaired, uh, the work with those who um, have psychoses. This work requires the liminality so profound that the physician, clinician, scientist can simultaneously inhabit his own knowledge and expertise while inhabiting fully the experience of the other. And so what it is that so teaches us as it inspires and enthralls and awes us in the work is indeed that travel by which he can, and this is why he's a figure as well as a man, that he can abandon his position while not losing it, so as, so fully, to inhabit the reality and the lived experience of the other, who, for the first time, perhaps, has hence been understood. Please, Oliver Seth. Uh, um, am I audible? I'm sort of deaf as well, so I can't hear your response. <laughs> so, so, so not if I'm audible. Okay. Um, uh, um, uh, Rita, thank you very much for, for actually for telling me who I am. <laughs> it was a, a lovely introduction, and it's a great pleasure to be here, although um, I'm sort of awed because I thought this was going to be a class with 20 people, <laughs> and um, there are a lot of you. Um, uh, um, hallucinations are uh, a big subject, and I'm only going to deal with part of it. Uh, the word came in at the beginning of the 17th century. Uh, Thomas Brown is one of the people who used it. It took on a medical and psychiatric connotation in the 1830s. Um, but the sort of hallucinations I will be talking about are not psychiatric or psychotic ones.
in psychotic visions um, uh, are addressed to one, are relevant to one, you feel you're in their presence, you feel intentionality, there may be accusation or seduction or excitement or delusion, um, uh, there's intense emotion and a feeling of, of uh, uh, envelopment. Um, uh, but I'm... Uh, patients may hesitate to use the word hallucination because of its psychiatric connotations. Um, the, well, the particular form of hallucinations which have engaged me um, uh, have relation to sensory loss. So the sort of hallucinations which may be experienced by people who are somewhat deaf or completely deaf or blind. And uh, working mostly with elderly people, as I've done for 40 years, uh, I encounter a lot of often delightful, intelligent, creative, non-psychotic people. <laughs> I mean, love myself. <laughs> you, you know, who, who, who are half blind or half deaf and who have hallucinations. Um, uh, in an earlier book, I wrote about the musical, the auditory, mostly musical hallucinations of the deaf. In a future book, I might write about the, the olfactory hallucinations of those who have lost their sense of smell. But today, I'm going to talk about the visual hallucinations of, um, uh, I suppose I should say the visually different, but I'm afraid I have to say the, the visually impaired. Um, I, um, uh, and I, I try to enter what goes on with them as best I can. And I would say this is slightly facilitated by being slightly visually impaired and slightly hallucinated myself. <laughs> um, now, I should also say that the sort of hallucinations which blind people have are not dissimilar to some of the hallucinations which I'm sure all of you have experienced uh, when drugged um, <laughs> or when falling asleep um, or when perhaps in situations of sensory monotony when, when driving along empty roads or, or, or being on big calm ships or looking out at the sky. But um, now I think um, being a neurologist, I, uh, um, I keep close to my patients and I'm going to speak in mostly clinical terms, at least to begin with. Um, now, um, I go to an old age home in the Bronx. I'd gone there for many years, and uh, some months ago, I got a phone call from them. They said they had an old lady in her 90s. Um, uh, she had seen normal enough, but suddenly she was seeing things. Um, and uh, they didn't know whether she, she'd gone mad. They'd called a psychiatrist, or whether she had a stroke, or whether she was delirious. Uh, could I come and see and what could I make of this? Um, there's something I should have said a, a little bit earlier. Um, hallucinations are quite different from images or from imagery. You own your own imagery. You, it, um, you put images together, whereas hallucinations seem to come from outside. And this may be apparent in people's behavior, because when you have a hallucination, you look, you listen, you sniff. Um, uh, incidentally, in a film which has just been 
re-released called A Matter of Life and Death. Uh, it was um, at one time in this country called Stairway to Heaven. Um, there, there is a fascinating, surreal story, which in fact rather beautifully corresponds with temporal lobe epilepsy and its hallucinations. And if you look at it, you will see how, um, how there's looking, listening to music, and sniffing a smell which no one else smells. Anyhow, to come back, I went to see this old lady, um, and uh, the first thing she told me, which I hadn't been told, or that was evident, was that she was blind. Uh, she said she'd had macular degeneration, and that she'd been virtually blind for five years, but that suddenly, three days before, she started seeing people. Um, I asked what they were like. Um, and here, of course, one is entirely dependent on narrative, on people's stories. You have no way to know what people are dreaming or hallucinating unless they tell you. And some people are natural storytellers and others are not. But hallucinations demand stories. She said that she saw people in Eastern dress, in drapes, walking up and down stairs. A man who turns towards me and smiles, but he has huge teeth on one side of his mouth. Animals, too. I see a white building and it is snowing, a soft snow. I see this horse with a harness dragging snow away. Then one night, the scene changes. I see cats and dogs walking towards me. They come to a certain point and then stop. Then it changes again. I see a lot of children. They're walking up and down stairs. They wear bright colors, rose and blue, rose and blue like Eastern dress. Um, I asked her if this was like a dream, and she said no, it was like a movie, only silent. She said there was movement, color, no sound, purely visual. She also said that it seemed to be a rather boring movie. Because uh, people were walking pointlessly, they were going up and down stairs, animals were appearing and disappearing, and it was all this Eastern dress. Um, and she was rather, uh, and um, she said that the hallucinations seemed to come and go by themselves, um, to be completely unrelated to what she, that she couldn't summon them, and she couldn't stop them, that she didn't recognize any of the figures she saw, nor did they appear to recognize or have cognizance of her. So there was really no feeling of engagement or contact. Uh, it was happening in front of her, and she was forced to view it. Um, well, I examined her. Um, I wondered, as the nurses did, you know, is she becoming psychotic? Is she demented? Has she had a stroke? Is she, does she have some strange medical problem? Is she toxic from some drunk? Um, and even, even aspirin can produce musical hallucinations, and there are lots of things which can produce. But all of this seemed to be negative. The only thing seemed to be her blindness. And um, so I said to her that I thought I knew what she had, and that this syndrome of visual hallucinations with blindness uh, had originally been recognized in the 18th century, had been described by a Swiss naturalist called Charles Bonnet, and that she had Charles Bonnet syndrome. And she was very 
reassured that, uh, and, uh, and I indicated that this was benign, it didn't go with any brain damage, and the thing was often fugitive and might settle in a few days, or might not, but, but it, you know, it, it, one could live with it quite well. So she was very reassured by this, and also rather curious. She said, uh, who is this Charles Bonnet? Didn't have it himself. Uh, and she said, um, tell the nurses, tell them that I have Charles Bonnet. Um, it was very, very important because an act of education was, was needed. Um, now, I should say um, that, um, uh, that up to about 1990 or so, uh, Charles Bonnet syndrome, visual hallucinations, and visually impaired people, and the visual impairment can be in the eyes or the optic nerves or the visual parts of the brain, uh, was not well recognized and was often misdiagnosed. People had no idea of its incidence, um, partly because people who, well, there are very mild forms of it, such as the form I have, in which, um, in which one merely sees geometrical patterns which, which flicker vaguely and then go away. Um, and uh, there may be a brief episode of things like this which people forget or they don't bother to mention. If they see faces or animals, they may be scared and they are afraid they're going mad or losing their minds or that other people will think so. So in fact, uh, this comes up. I discussed this with the ophthalmologist here at the Columbia. Almost no one volunteers symptoms of Charles Bonnet and they may deny them when you first see them, and you need sort of delicate, tactful, sensitive, sort of, perhaps continuing relationship um, mm -hmm. before. And also that when uh, there's also, until recently, there's been a lot of medical ignorance about this, and doctors are being inclined to dismiss it or to, or to misdiagnose it. Um, but as I say, working in old age homes with people like this, I have seen lots of people with, with this. Um, now, Charles Bonnet, um, I think I must tell you a little bit about him and what he described. Um, I'm afraid of an electrical mishap. Right? <laughs> okay. um, it's um, nearly 90 years of age, but completely intact mentally, partly blind, not completely blind, so he had some residual sight. His name was Charles Mullin. And in 1758, he started to see things. And when his grandson heard of this, he persuaded his grandfather to dictate an account. Um, Charles Bonnet himself, published in 1760 a very brief summary of his grandfather's symptoms. His grandfather's original account got lost for 150 years. 
in fact, surfaced early in the 20th century. And it's, uh, it's never been translated into English as far as I know, but um, I'm going to read you a certain amount from, our, uh, from a translation by a friend. Um, so in 1758, Charles Lunner um, saw something in midair which resembled a blue handkerchief with a small yellow circle in each corner. You don't have blue handkerchiefs in midair. It was a hallucination. But this knowledge did not extend to some other uh, um, experiences which were um, appropriate with context. So on one occasion, uh, when his granddaughters came in to see him, um, uh, he, um, uh, accompanied by two young men wearing magnificent cloaks, red and grey, and hats trimmed with silver. And he said to his granddaughters, what handsome gentlemen you walked with you. Why didn't you tell me they were coming? And they looked rather puzzled. And they said, alas, there were no such gentlemen. And then the gentleman vanished a minute or so later. And, but here, since it was possible uh, that his granddaughters were being wooed, by, by such handsome gentlemen, um, but too bad. Um, um, then, um, um, on the whole, most of his hallucinations were of women, always beautifully, I don't know how to pronounce the word, coiffed, coiffed? Um, it was hard to do with the hair. Um, uh, and, um, and all of them, strangely, would have a small box on their heads. Some of them had flowers coming out of their ears. And um, on one occasion, um, uh, his servant came in, followed by two gigantic ladies who were so tall that their heads touched the ceiling. And he said, who are these ladies you brought with me? You brought with you? Excuse me, sir, there's no one here. You've gone blind, man. They're so huge, you could hardly miss them. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, they disappeared as well. Um, and uh, um, so these hallucinations tended to last two or three minutes to appear suddenly and disappear suddenly. Um, uh, and, um, and all of them silent. Now, sometimes there was a different experience. I've said that he still had some sight. He was still able to walk through the streets of Paris. And on one occasion, he saw a scaffolding. But when he got back, he saw a small model of the scaffolding on his desk. <laughs> and this is a, a related um, sort of phenomenon, which is sometimes called palinopsia, when something one perceives is regurgitated later, and sometimes larger or smaller or a different color variously modified, um, uh, in a way it may have some analogy to those who hallucinate music they just heard or a few hours afterwards. Um, but the actual hallucinations were very various. Um, we saw landscapes framed like paintings, a city of the distance, a woodland scene, forests, a fountain with its spray dispersed by the wind. So anyhow, this, um, this is then is a very 
a rich account of, um, of things which went on with him for about six months. Um, I'm going to speak later about his own reactions to it and other people's reactions, but this will give you some idea of the, of the spread of the phenomena. Um, now I'm going to um, jump from Charles Bonnet um, to one of my own patients, uh, a, um, uh, a delightful and, and intelligent old lady, uh, increasingly visually impaired. Uh, I call her Zelda, but that's not her name. That is fairly close to her name. Um, uh, yeah. the, and um, Zelda's experience has started suddenly when she was at the theater one night with her husband, and suddenly the safety curtain had come down, and suddenly she saw roses bursting out of the safety curtain. She said they were three-dimensional. It wasn't like a painting. Um, now, when I um, saw Zelda, um, I asked if she would keep a journal. I often do this with patients, and I confess I was partly thinking of Romance Journal, but she herself is a writer and, uh, and, and was happy to do this. Um, so um, she said, um, well, she has both simple and complex hallucinations. These simple hallucinations are geometrical patterns which may occur uh, when she's reading or writing or in a sort of semi-transparent film over the television set. And she said, as I write this page, it is becoming more and more covered by a pale green and pink lattice. The garage walls covered in white cinder block continually mutate, coming to resemble bricks or platboard. Or clapboard. I don't know how to pronounce uh, or being covered with damask, damask, <laughs> I mean, difficult to do. Um, you know, I, I, I have a large written vocabulary and a lot of small spoken <laughs> of flowers of different colors. Um, uh, beside these simple ones, she had more complex hallucinations, which seemed to be especially common when she was being driven in a car. This is frequently mentioned by people, um, and visual movement, optic flow, may, uh, may tend to... So, um, so when she was being driven, uh, she would see battlements, as she called them, bridges, viaducts, apartment houses by the side of the road. Once when she and her husband were driving along a snowy road, she was starting to see brilliant green bushes, quote, their leaves glittering with icicles to either side of the road. On another occasion, um, uh, again, her husband was driving her. As we drove away from the beauty parlor, I saw what looked like a teenage boy on the front hood of our car, leaning on his arms with his feet up in the air. He stayed there for about five minutes. Even when we turned, he stayed on the hood of the car. As we pulled into the restaurant parking lot, he ascended into the air, up against the building, and stayed there until I got out of the car. Um, the, um, she has some vision, and there are some strange perceptual um, disturbances as well. Um, 
when she looked at me, for example, she saw my rather modest beard expand and cover my entire head so she could no longer see my face. Um, this is sometimes called illusory visual spread. Um, sometimes looking in the mirror, she would see her own hair two foot above her, uh, her head and would her sort of have to make certain that it was in place. Um, uh, a, um, a particular perceptual symptom she has uh, has regard to splitting or multiplication of what she's seeing. So once while eating in a restaurant with her husband, she saw a man in a striped shirt paying at the counter, and then he turned round and divided into seven, into seven men in striped shirts, who then came together, concertina together, uh, uh, as he got to the table. Um, uh, she could um, observe this with detachment and interest, but on another occasion when she was being driven, she saw the road ahead of her split into four and then felt that she was visually at least simultaneously driving up all four roads. So to give a name to this, this is, this is called polyopia. And polyopia and paranopsia often go together. Um, and um, there are domestic forms of this as well. So she said, um, making dinner and eating can be quite difficult. I keep seeing several pieces, several of each piece of food when they didn't exist. Um, I was reminded here of a lovely description in the literature of a case um, described by Donald Critchley, who was a, uh, a wonderful narrative neurologist. He described one patient in which as cherries were eaten from the dish, they were replaced by hallucinatory cherries. So the, so the dish was never exhausted, the seemingly endless cornucopia of cherries, and then suddenly the dish was totally empty. And also he speaks of a man who was picking blackberries, picked everyone he could see, but then to his delight found four more he had missed, but these turned out to be hallucinations. Um, so um, sometimes you can mistake hallucinations for realities, and sometimes vice versa. Um, a, um, a, a Dutch colleague who's a, I haven't been watching the time, does it matter? A colleague in Holland who was a great expert on this, and really the one who has put this on the map and indicated that something like 20, 15, or 20 percent of visually impaired people may have things like this, even though only a tiny fraction of them will volunteer things. But um, he told me, <coughs> told me about one patient of his who. Um, who still had some vision, uh, who lived <coughs> high up on a 20th story apartment in Rotterdam, and, um, and was startled to see a man outside his window. Um, uh, you can't have a man sort of in midair outside the window, and he um, assumed this was a hallucination when, when the apparition waved at him, he paid no attention. But then, as you may have guessed, the apparition moved next door, was the window washer, <laughs> and said to his neighbor, what's wrong with it? You know, he, um, I waved and he didn't respond. So um, sometimes you can't distinguish. Um, now, 
Um, 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 one, one other patient. Uh, this was a, a young woman who, who had a benign tumor, really a malformation, in the visual part of the brain at the back, in one of her occipital lobes. Um, and uh, she needed to have surgery, um, uh, because it was thought that this was life-threatening. Um, she was told that she might have some visual seizures after surgery. She did have some of these. These were extremely simple. She would see a little glittering ball to one side of her for a few seconds, and that would disappear. She was not given any intimation that there might then develop something more complex, and in particular, uh, extraordinary phenomena confined to half the visual field, um, the, the left visual field. Um, and here she had all sorts of hallucinations and panoxias. The first one was the flower. Uh, the flower seemed very, very brilliant on the sunlight. She said it seemed to burn its way into her brain. And she continued to see this flower for 24 hours afterwards, superimposed like a transparency over that left half field. Um, then there were other, um, uh, more commonly, she would see people's faces, and sometimes the faces were very deformed or grotesque and frightening. I mentioned Rosalie's description of a man with huge teeth on one side of the mouth, and in particular she would see faces either distort her actual perception of faces or have hallucinations, usually with large teeth and eyes. Um, she wondered when she came to see me whether uh, she had what she called a depraved imagination, whether she was becoming psychotic. Um, and I, one of the things I was able to tell her, I'll say more about this later, uh, is that hallucinations of deformed and dismembered faces with enlarged teeth and eyes are absolutely characteristic here and go with stimulation of a particular part of the visual cortex. And if you want, this is a, a neurological vision, not, not a psychiatric one. Um, she also... Um, uh, sometimes saw people simplified or, or exaggerated as in cartoons, but she also had hallucinatory cartoons. And in particular, she saw Kermit the Frog. <laughs> and um, now, I didn't know who Kermit the Frog was. Um, she explained, and, and I said, um, well, is, 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 is Kermit the Frog important? And she said, Kermit means nothing to me. <laughs> and, um, the, uh, and she didn't know why, why Kermit should, should be there. And um, uh, I'm just going to remember this Kermit means nothing, because this is something which is sharply different from how it would be with dreams or psychotic hallucinations, where maybe with a little interpretation. Um, I mean, I, I did mention this to my analyst because he thought one should go into the, the possible meanings of Kermit. But certainly, superficially, Kermit meant, meant nothing to her. Um, so, if I can summarize a little bit at this point, 
there is a whole range of visual phenomena and hallucinations, starting with these rather simple geometric patterns, twig-like patterns, and ending up with, um, in particular, uh, visions of people, of animals, of buildings, of faces, especially of deformed faces, um, and of landscapes. Um, and also there's this special category of cartoon hallucinations, which a lot of people get. Um, and uh, although the picture is, is different in every person, and they change in the same person, there, are, there tend to be these general categories of hallucination. There's another category which interests me uh, considerably, partly as a follow-up to my, my book on music and musical hallucinations, there are some people who have so-called text hallucinations, who have hallucinations of writing or letters or of musical notation. Um, uh, although um, I had a colleague who saw me recently with this, um, a very, a very good amateur pianist, though now uh, increasingly disabled by macular degeneration and no longer able to sort of read a score, but he, he first saw checkerboards and geometrical hallucinations, and then he started seeing musical pages of music. And at first, um, I said, what were they like? And, and he said, at first, he was very excited. He saw this. He wondered if it was simply a spontaneous act of, of, of creation, of major creation. It was tremendously complex. He wondered if, he was, if a Stravinsky had been suddenly born inside him. Um, but then, he, when he looked more closely, he realized that this page of music was, was unreadable um, because it had six or seven staves. Uh, the chords would sometimes have five or six notes attached. And um, he would see not only sharps and flats and double sharps and flats, but multiple sharps and flats. I asked what they looked like. And uh, he might see a sextuple flat, which would consist of six, six Bs there. There were also all sorts of grace notes and appoggiaturas and mordants and turns and arrows indicating that something should be played an octave. And, and as he said, this was in fact a, a meaningless potpourri of, uh, of musical notation. Um, but uh, this, this needless, absurd multiplication and ornamentation was there, which I think has some, some analogy to the sort of the, um, the boxes on the head and the, and, the, and the extravagant clothes and so forth. Um, now, um, so what is, what is going on with these people? And when Charles Lunin's account was surfaced and was published uh, in a, uh, a psychiatric journal at the beginning of the 20th century, a couple of years after the interpretation of dreams was published, uh, it was immediately wondered whether here, too, one would have a, a royal road to the unconscious. Yes. Um, uh, something rich in symbolism and meaning and, uh, and, and, and emotion and, and, and showing conflict and fixation and fantasy and camouflage and whatever. Um, well, uh, an enthusiastic Freudian exploration um, really got nowhere. 
Um, and, um, uh, and then, really, the subject was neglected um, until the 1990s. It wasn't reported much, it was neglected. But in the 1990s, a, uh, um, a colleague of mine in England, uh, Dominic Fitch, uh, started to see patients made very, very careful taxonomies of the sorts of symptoms they complained of, the sort of stories they told, and was then able to do functional brain imaging while people were having different sorts of hallucination. And it was uh, uh, Dominic Fitch who showed that um, deformed faces went with activation, but he showed that um, the simple geometrical hallucinations <coughs> went with activation in the primary visual cortex and the occipital lobes. Um, other sorts of hallucinations were uh, associated with activation higher up, what's sometimes called the, the ventral visual pathway going up to the temporal lobes. And as a start, um, people, animals, buildings, landscapes, cartoons, and hideous faces all seem to have their own discrete representations. Um, beyond this, there has been fascinating uh, physiological work showing that there may be particular cells in these parts of the brain which respond to faces or landscapes uh, or whatever. Um, and and um, uh, I should say that the negative side of all of this is that are people with neurological problems who are unable to recognize faces or places or, um, or text or print, these sort of prosopagnosis, topagnosis, elepsis, and all these lovely classical things. But here we are in a way seeing the positive side of this. Yeah. We're seeing hallucinations of, of these things. Um, uh, and, um, but why? What's going on? Um, normally, um, uh, the world, the visual world, is represented um, in innumerable ways at higher and higher levels. We think we are just given a world full of movement and color and position and meaning, uh, but any of these can be knocked out separately. You can, you can have a cerebral incident which deprives you of a perception of color mm. or of motion, um, or at a higher level of the perception of faces or of, of, of landscapes. Um, and so there's a whole hierarchy of levels, and normally all of these are integrated in the act of perception, and also I would say in the act of imagination. Yeah. Integrated with each other, integrated with the other senses, and integrated with memory and emotion. It is, um, uh, none of these integrations occur or tend to occur in Charles Bonnet syndrome where you have isolated, purely visual, indifferent, uh, and often absurd uh, um, uh, apparitions which, which you can't connect and which sometimes you, you can't even recognize. Um, the notion is that in the absence of, is that perception normally organizes and constrains the whole visual system. And in the relative 
relative or absolute absence of visual perception, the system can go berserk. It will be released. Um, you never have just emptiness or loss of activity in the brain. Uh, the brain is always active. Um, and in the absence of perceptual input, you will start to generate um, uh, either very vivid imagery or hallucinations, or both. Uh, the, the, vivid, the vivid imagery, if you want to call it the, the, the Beethoven situation, is, is a different one. Um, so here, there seems to be a sort of anarchic uh, firing uh, of, uh, of cells at relatively simple levels in this ventral visual path, pathway, in particular at levels below the level of correlation with other senses or with emotions or memory. Um, so, so these are not light dreams, which of course are mostly occurring at a higher level, although I think they are, they are largely visual. Um, uh, um, so, um, um, th there's often not a strong sense then of personally owning these visions. They often have to be something one has seen, a what rather than a who. And there's also a puzzling feeling that who, who sent those, yeah. who ordered that, yeah. um, is not mine. I've never seen anyone in Eastern dress. Where these people come from? Um, the, um, however, obviously sometimes there are personal influences. Um, there could hardly not be because it's not just there are not just sort of categories in the cortex of of, uh, of faces and, and landscapes and animals. There's one's own experience, and this gets in somehow. So, for example, the, um, my colleague who um, hallucinated music, um, coincidentally or not, had been a very ardent pianist and someone who had spent a lifetime looking at musical scores. Um, a patient whom I saw recently, um, a very religious woman who had a, a visual stroke um, and hallucinations for just four or five days, among her hallucinations were praying hands. Um, a, um, someone whom I'm going to speak of in more detail, uh, who was a, a dog lover, uh, had mostly hallucinations of dogs. But this, having been said, uh, in general, it's quite difficult to sort of pin down, pin down influences. Um, the, um, and again, there's this feeling of passivity, and someone I'm going to refer to again, a, uh, a gifted poet who had these, said of her vision, she says, I, I am not traveling these scenes, they are traveling through me. Yeah. Um, incidentally, um, by contrast, in, um, uh, in the so-called experiential seizures, you can have the temporal lobe epilepsy, I'm sorry, the, exper the experiential hallucinations, you can have the temporal lobe epilepsy, there is a strong feeling of personal involvement. You are there in that uh, at that corner of 8th Avenue on a Tuesday evening at 5 o'clock uh, in Dayton, Ohio, waiting for your girlfriend and you can smell the chestnuts. You know. And um, these are strongly located in space and time, uh, whether they're memories or fantasies. Uh, and 
memory and emotion, which is not the case on the whole with the Charles Bonnet ones. Um, so some, some reactions, um, and so one wonders, well, how do people live with this? What are their reactions and what relation can it have uh, really to um, sometimes to reverie or, or to imagination? Um, now, Charles Lunet, um, who sometimes uh, quite enjoyed his hallucinations, and he would sometimes go to a quiet room for a brief hallucinatory print. His grandson wrote, his mind makes merry with the images. His brain is a theater where the stage machinery puts on performances which are all the more amazing because they are unexpected. Um, the, something rather similar was said, and there's been a delightful, um, I don't know whether it's been published, account by a man called David Stewart. It's just called Seeing Things. Um, and he speaks of his uh, hallucinations as being friendly and unthreatening. Uh, certainly unthreatening and uh, either friendly or indifferent. Um, and he imagines his eyes saying, quote, sorry to have let you down. We recognize that blindness is no fun. So we've organized this small syndrome, a sort of coda to your sight of life. It's not much, but it's the best we can do. <laughs> um, I think he's sort of putting a very brave, brave and humorous face on things because it's... Um, now, another person whom I visited on the, on the West Coast, I, um, I, I, I try and combine my, my travel with seeing neurological patients. That's sort of a, somehow, sometimes it works. Um, uh, although, um, and this man, Ernie, um, was an inveterate storyteller. Um, uh, stories bubble out of him. And um, his experience, I think, is somewhat unusual. And I don't know to what extent his own inveterate, incontinent uh, storytelling uh, may actually infiltrate his, his hallucinations. And certainly one feels this when people are giving accounts of dreams, how much is being put into a logical, symbolic. But anyhow, um, he became blind as a result of retinal hemorrhages, his initial hallucinations uh, were very unpleasant. He saw, quote, ghastly faces with medieval eyes. Incidentally, he'd had a great interest in medieval architecture, here again. Um, but also, he was the man whom I mentioned earlier as loving dogs. And he said, after a few weeks, these, these gargoyles disappeared. They were replaced by what he called delightful hallucinatory journeys in which he would find himself traveling, quote, as if on a magic carpet, floating up densely forested mountain valley with beautiful vistas to either side. Um, and, um, uh, and on the walls of the valley, going up the valley, he would see dogs. Um, they were poodles. He was very fond of poodles. Um, uh, he couldn't say they were his poodles, but they were poodles. Um, he felt they were looking at him in an affectionate way, but, uh, but he couldn't be, be quite sure of that. Um, 
And um, this was going on while he talked to us. Now, this is a man who is, um, he is the opposite. He is a, an extrovert, a jovial man. He's a great host at dinner. Um, he likes to go out for drives in the morning. Uh, he says, I don't need to go for a drive. And uh, now, now, he, now he's blind. He likes to be chauffeured up. He says, I'm having a wonderful time right now. <laughs> so, so here, the hallucination and its narrative so went together. Now, finally, it seems um, that then her poetic voice ceased, or she turned to academic work, which may sometimes quench poetic voices, um, and uh, became uh, quite a notable scholar. But then, in her mid 70s, she started to become blind. And um, uh, as she became blind, again from macular degeneration, she started to see things. And what I was sent was um, a wonderful journal which she had kept, um, as well as various poems. Now, her first book of poetry was in fact published at the age of 83, and was followed by two other books. And her poetic imagination was, um, was ignited and inspired to a considerable extent by the hallucinations. Um, and I think I'm just going to read a little bit from her journal, um, because her poems you can read for yourself. Um, she said, I sink, uh, she's in a chair, um, and I maneuvered into a delightfully soft chair. I sink submerged as usual in shades of night. The sea of clouds at my feet clears, revealing a small flock of fowl, no two alike, in somber plumage. The miniature peacock, very splendor, with its little crest and unfurled tail feathers, some pompous specimens, and a shorebird on long stems. Now it appears that several are wearing shoes, <laughs> and among them a bird with four feet. One expects more colour among a flock of birds, even in the hallucinations of the blind. <laughs> the birds have turned into little men and women in medieval attire, all strolling away from me. I see only their backs, short tunics, tights or leggings, shawls or kerchiefs. And then she, things change. She sees colourful sections of architrave, borders of illumination, round rumps of horses, with or without riders, Botticelli's angels, which has oh, the wonder and complexity of it all, broken masterpieces comforting one another. We do not see again, but in sleep and the state they call blindness. Um, and a little later, Opening my eyes on the smoke screen of my room, I'm treated to stabs of sapphire, bags of rubies scattering across the night, a legless vaquero and a check shirt stuck on the back of a small steer. The familiar milkman invaded the scene in his azure cart with a golden horse. He joined us some days ago out of some forgotten book of nursery rhymes or the back of a depression cereal packet. But the magic lantern show of colored oddities has faded. 
and I am back in black wall country without form or substance. Okay, thank you. Activity, 
I don't know. I've, um, his hallucinate his um, visions of his home village in Italy, on Tito, first um, occurred in dreams, and when he, and in the waking state, he he would have similar visions. I sometimes would would see him sort of suddenly turn and gaze. I would see his pupils dilate. He would also move his head because his visions, he said, were like holograms and three-dimensional. And this set him into a, a visionary art of uh, painting and reconstructing Pontito, um, often with, um, with incredible accuracy, combined with poetic sensitivity. And, um, uh, and so this is, is an example. Um, in your book, Musicophilia, you talk about, you write about um, the music, the musical hallucinations, people here driving them crazy, like making them like really annoying and drive, driving them kind of psychotic. Does this happen in this syndrome? Even though they don't start out psychotic, can they become psychotic? Um, so, so, I'm sorry about that. So, so, for those who can't hear, the question is about um, in uh, the book of Musicophilia, uh, the idea that musical hallucinations kind of drive people to the brink or whatever, drive people psychotic, and whether or not a similar kind of torturous experience happens here. Um, well, yes, sometimes. Um, Zelda, um, you know, spoke of how when she was trying to keep her journal, the journal got covered with, with, with pink and purple squares, or the television would get covered. And also how she would sometimes, uh, you know, mistake hallucinatory foods for for real foods. Um, at a, um, uh, I had a small example of this once myself, actually, when I was signing copies of *Musical Failure*, and I was really outraged when someone gave me a copy with a huge crease across the title page. And I went to smooth it out, and it wasn't there. Uh. <laughs> um, but at a more serious level. Um, one can get uh, um, frightening and sometimes dangerous hallucinations. Um, the, uh, when I was in England in November '05, there was a, it was called Visual Awareness Week, and accounts were being published. One account was of a, a younger woman uh, with macular degeneration who could still see. She was driving, and suddenly she saw two cars coming towards her. Um, screaming towards her, and she slowed down and actually uh, came to a stop and then looked round and saw there was only one car. So the other one was a palinoptic duplication of the car. There are also uh, some examples of people driving you know, who are sort of suddenly seen a brick wall in front of them and break down being rear-ended. It's, um, it's unusual for these hallucinations to, to be dangerous, but there are other rare examples. But on the general business of living with them, um, most people um, accommodate and come to terms with these, as most people do with, with musical hallucinations. Um, by account, I think, olfactory hallucinations, especially if they're nasty, may be among those difficult to, to live with. <coughs> Thank you.
Um, yeah. You mentioned before you were sort of toying with the idea as to whether they're externally or internally imposed, these uh, hallucinations. I was wondering, how do you, how do you tie this together with, with some, given that, given that people who are blind from birth obviously can't come up with the idea of sight, how do you tie this together with the concept that, that throughout history you've heard of hallucinations or um, insights that have come through dreams and hallucinations, you know, things that don't seem to be within the brain from the beginning? Oh, so the question is about, I'm sorry, tell me if I'm getting this right, uh, kind of internal and external motivations for hallucinations, and you're drawing on this idea of people being inspired by, uh, historically, by dreams and by hallucinations? Um, well, the, um, uh, a particularly common sort of hallucination, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention it, but a category of hallucination are Lilliputian hallucinations, um, and, um, or, um, or, or in perception, people speak of micropsia, where you see little men or women or animals, um, and uh, actually Rosalie, the first patient I mentioned, sometimes has this, but um, since in, in almost every culture there are mentions of gnomes and fairies and elves and yeah, leprechauns yeah. and sort of little, little people. Um, one, one, one wonders whether, um, probably not Charles Bonnet hallucinations, but the sort of common and similar hallucinations one can get as one's falling asleep, um, or if one is asleep or centrally deprived, or one has taken something. Um, one wonders how much um, the folklore of um, strange creatures and little people, yeah. as well as the higher orders of ghosts and spirits and angels and so forth, may, um, may uh, be prompted. And, um, one of my patients uh, um, got frightened one night by seeing three men in his room, one of them carrying a gun. Uh, and um, uh, in a rather um, melodramatic way, he said, be gone in the bowels of Christ. <laughs> and um, um, and um, with this exorcism, he said they slipped under the door. I said, under the door? And he said, yes, like, like a vapor. Um, but, when, but, but certainly something like this is, uh, you know, you can see how our uh, belief in them, um, now I've mostly been speaking of, you know, of sophisticated people in, in Western culture, but given some of these things, especially, I will say, the so-called hypnopompic hallucinations, which, uh, which one may get sometimes on waking, when you suddenly wake and find out a pterodactyl above the bed. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, I, I would suspect that there is a real spur to sort of cultural pigments and imaginings. Yeah. What about migraine horrors? Is that a kind of hallucination? Yes, um, I um, uh, very much so. And in, in a coming book on visual hallucination or, or various visual things, I have a whole chapter on, on migraine. Um, um, uh, um, there are many, um, the headache sort of migraine is, is often is preceded in some people by a sensory aura, a visual aura, and in others, there may, like myself and many others, there may just be a visual aura with no headache. Mm -hmm. um, the, although the classical visual aura t 
tends to consist of a brilliant, expanding, scintillating zigzag or fortification, because it looks like a medieval fort from the air. Uh, this is a very stereotype phenomenon that takes about 20 minutes to go across the, uh, the visual field or half field and then disappears. But in addition to this, there may be all sorts of uh, rapidly changing kaleidoscopic um, sort of geometrical hallucinations. One has very similar things in the early stages of Mescal. And occasionally, not commonly, but occasionally, there may be higher order hallucinations of, of people and places. Um, uh, incidentally, um, uh, Siri Puskett, who was a wonderful writer, um, uh, um, there was a sort of blog on, on migraine about 18 months ago. She contributed a wonderful account of Lilliputian hallucinations she had with a migraine. She's coming out with a book. On, on her Hallucinations. 
the brain activity in the hallucinations and in the recollection of them was quite different. Um, in particular, in the hallucinations themselves, one saw a lot of activity down in these primitive parts of the brain, and the ventral visual pathway, the infrotemporal cortex, so-called, not much higher up. Whereas when she summoned yes. images and constructed them in her mind, then her frontal lobes were very strongly involved, as well as the rest of the visual system. We're going to take a few more questions, and I'll hand the microphone here, and then take a few more from that side. About hallucinations. I had temporal lobe epilepsy, and I had surgery in 1999. They removed the hippocampus and a portion of my temporal lobe. So I am living right now with hallucinations in what you're talking about. Temporal lobe and hippocampus, no more epilepsy, no more seizures. But the it's a bittersweet effect, the surgery. Bittersweet. Because the seizures are gone, but your whole life changes. Your whole identity changes. And I'm wondering if it's from the removal of that hippocampus and a portion of that frontal lobe. Um, well, this is a, a big question. Uh, the, um, uh, I'm glad that only one hippocampus was removed. If indeed it was removed, um, uh, because the hippocampi are very, very important for, for event memory. And um, uh, the, um, 50 years ago, um, an operation was done on some, a man with temporal lobe seizures, removing both medial temporal lobes and both hippocampi. And he did not have any more seizures, but his memory was devastated, whereas I yeah. don't think yours is. Um, there may be various um, personality changes um, of all sorts following operations like this. Um, and um, it is... Uh, um, but, 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 but you know, I can't go into this more. Yeah. Um, I mean, in particular, I actually, I mentioned in News Profilia, one scientist um, of a, a, a very reserved character, very shy, who became enormously social, sociable after having part of the temporal lobe removed and became a social heart of the lab. <laughs> but I, 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 I hope that with you, you know, there may also be something good, but I can't say anymore. Um, there are a few questions back here. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, the differences between so-called psychological and neurological hallucinations, because um, it just seems like such a, a gray area to me. And uh, I mean, I'm wondering what kinds of um, you know functional imaging and things like this, and uh, you know which which part lights up when you when you have synesthesia, which part lights up when um, you know, it's, it's any given syndrome, um, and in, and also talking about things like, uh, I was thought of my grandmother who has Alzheimer's syndrome, and she'll often say there's, you know, there's somebody here and have a very imaginative story, and it seems like, you know, kind of paranoia, kind of, so maybe you could just talk a little bit more about sort of... Um, um, well, you know, when I went to see the, the old lady, Rosalie, uh, I mean, my 
first thought, as, as with the nurses, uh, at least when I was on the phone, was, you know, is this dementia, is this psychosis? Um, um, the, uh, yeah, no, certainly one can have um, uh, all sorts of hallucinations uh, with Alzheimer's, especially when Alzheimer's, uh, there's a form, there's something sometimes called posterior cortical atrophy when Alzheimer's affects the the occipital nose especially. Um, um, some, of, some of the hallucinations then uh, seem to be primary visual phenomena. Others seem to be enactments or concretizations, whatever, of, of delusions. Um, the, um, uh, in, um, in delirium with a fever, uh, you can get hallucinations of, of, of all sorts. Um, the whether in fact um, I, I may have sort of made a um, you know, too much of a heuristic division between some of the psychotic and the organic because uh, um, undoubtedly things I think can, can go both ways um, there have been quite a lot of studies but I'm afraid I don't really know about them yet on these on schizophrenic hallucinations, that's, that's the next subject, but I, I'm, I'm not up to it yet. Um, the, um, uh, and whether, in fact, they are um, any more than dreams, um, purely sort of uh, um, embodiments of, of desire and fear and conflict, or to what extent they may be primary, physiolog primary physiological phenomena, I think isn't, isn't clear. And then you probably have, have all sorts mixed up together. So I, I, um, I, I agree there's a, there's a sort of huge transitional area. Unfortunately, we're uh, starting to run out of time because we want to give people a chance to uh, get, get books signed by Dr. Sack. So I will take maybe one or two more if they're really great. Okay, one more. One more question. <laughs> Manifestations of the hallucinations? Is there, is there any data on that? If there's a pattern between the onset of macular degeneration and the hallucination, yeah. um, I, um, I don't quite know enough about this, but I do know that um, uh, one may have visual hallucinations quite early in macular degeneration when one is seen relatively well. Um, and on the other hand, as with Rosalie, you may be blind or almost blind from it for years before getting them. And so I am, um, but certainly of all the, the eye problems, the macular ones seem to be most productive of the I want to thank uh, Dr. Sachs again.